Well, thank you for having me, uh, and uh, do turn up, Matthew chapter 8. So Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8 in your Bibles. Um, at Christchurch, we've recently been, well, I say recently, for the last many months, we've been working through uh, Matthew's Gospel. We've recently completed uh, chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and uh, we're continuing to work our way through. And last week, we came to chapter 8, and I wanted to bring you the beginning of that chapter Uh, This morning, Uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records the response of the crowds. Before we look at the passage, if you've opened up your Bibles, um, then do do look at the end of chapter seven and verses 28 to 29. Where Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The Sermon on the Mount, incredible teaching, the crowds were amazed by the authority with which Jesus taught. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you may well uh, be familiar with it, he, he, he picks up the moral law of the Old Testament and said, this, this is what it was getting at. Let me unpack it for you. You've heard it said, don't murder. Well, I tell you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Incredible teaching, incredible authority. Well, having having seen him teach with authority, Matthew now shifts the focus to Jesus healing with authority in chapters 8 and 9. Let's have a read of today's passage before we consider what we can learn from it. So we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 13 of Matthew chapter 8. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, He was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown into, uh, sorry, thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Let's pray before we consider this passage together. 
Our dear Lord Jesus, we may well be familiar with passages like this, like this one, uh, and perhaps with this passage itself. We pray that we would not allow familiarity to, uh, to, to, to mean that this passage would wash over us. Help us to be struck afresh and the extraordinary miracles that you, uh, you conducted in these two instances that we're going to look at this morning. Please help us to marvel at your great authority, at your great power, at your majesty. And would you teach us, would you train us, would you correct us, would you, would you draw us on to live righteous lives that you might receive the glory in and through them. In Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapters eight and nine um, of Matthew's gospel, gospel, we find three sets of three healings and they're interspersed by two episodes where we see how people react to him. Today, we're just going to focus on two of that first set of three healings. And firstly, we'll look at uh, the healing of the man with leprosy in verses one to four, and then the healing of the centurion's servant in verses five to 13. And in each case, we're going to consider these um, these two healings with 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 sort of three subtitles or three, um, three ideas, three kind of ways of looking at them. And they are these. They are exclusion, faith and authority. So let's look firstly at the healing of the man with leprosy in verses one to four. And firstly, let's consider how excluded he was. You see, leprosy is a nasty disease and it's nasty for two reasons. Firstly, there's the physical suffering. Children, if you uh, don't know about leprosy, let me fill you in a little bit. The disease would spread gradually over your body uh, and lead to a loss of feeling in different parts of the body. You could sort of pinch uh, the fingers and you just wouldn't feel uh, the pain or or even any kind of pressure on your fingers. As these then became infected, your your fingers would become sort of mangled and, and your toes and, and feet would would even turn black uh, and perhaps even begin uh, to, parts of your body might even begin to drop off. Ultimately, the disease was fatal. That means it killed you. Recovery from this horrible disease was very rare. But as well as all of that physical suffering, which, let's face it, was pretty horrible, there was the impact that it had on your role and place in society. We didn't have time to read the whole of Leviticus 13 and 14, but what we have read there uh, shows us that if you developed a skin condition, you had to present yourself to the priests. Uh, They would inspect you. And if they confirmed that you had a skin condition like leprosy, then you would immediately be cut off from the camp and placed in quarantine. So you weren't only physically unwell, you were also ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and cut off from society. Of course, the exclusion makes sense. The disease was contagious. And so they were concerned about not spreading it. But that wouldn't have made the exclusion, being cut off like that, any less horrible. 
In recent months, we've all had to stay home. We've, uh, we've had to meet up with fewer people, not shake hands. Well, this man wouldn't have been touched, wouldn't have touched or been touched by another person for as long as he had had this horrible disease. And with these skin diseases, it wasn't unusual for them to last many years. Remember those verses at the end of chapter 13 of Leviticus that Rebecca read for us. Verse 45 and 46, the person afflicted with an infectious skin disease is to have his clothes torn, his hair hanging loose, and he must cover his mouth, wear a face mask, and cry out, unclean, unclean. He'll remain unclean as long as he has the infection. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside the camp. So we're not just talking here about face masks, are we? Everything was designed to ensure that if you if you encountered someone like this, even at a distance, you knew to stay away. This was a man on the outside of society, cut off, excluded. And yet wonderfully, Jesus heals him. Let's consider, secondly, the faith of the diseased man. Have a look at verses two and three. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. We might have expected him to say, Jesus, I, I don't suppose, I, you know, I, I can't imagine it's possible, but I don't suppose there's any way that you could heal someone with my condition. But he doesn't say that. He is confident that Jesus is able to heal him. It's simply a question of whether he's willing. Don't allow that to pass you by. Remember, most people didn't recover from these illnesses. When you got it, you were confined, confined to a life of pain and a, and a continual and gradual decline in your health until your eventual death. And all that time, don't forget, you would be without the support and without the care of family or friends. But here's the remarkable thing. Despite all that, despite knowing what was the likely outcome for him, there isn't even a whisper of doubt in his mind that Jesus can heal him. He knew something, didn't he, of the man he came before. And he trusted simply that Jesus could heal him. It's only a question of whether he was willing. And that brings us to our third observation. He understood the authority of Jesus. Notice how he approaches him with humility, not with a demanding spirit. You can imagine how desperate he must have been. But he knew better than to tell Jesus what to do. He recognised Jesus's authority. So he dropped to his knees and he called him Lord. Jesus, you have the authority. You have the power. You can make me clean. But I submit my will to yours. It's a simple trust 
in Jesus's authority. And he was absolutely right. Notice Jesus's response. I am willing. Be clean. But Jesus doesn't just say those words. He then does the unthinkable. He reaches out his hand and touches the man. It's hard to convey the enormity of this moment. Leviticus chapter five, verse three, makes clear that anyone who touched someone, someone unclean with a skin disease like this, would themselves become unclean and, of course, risk being infected themselves. But not so with Christ. With no face mask or face shield, without disposable gloves or a protective apron, with no carefully thought through risk assessment, he reaches out and touches him. And far from becoming unclean himself, Jesus makes the unclean clean. Immediately, that's a precious word, isn't it? Immediately he was cleansed, he was cured of his leprosy. This man, this man who's received no physical contact throughout his illness, who's endured self-isolation, words that have a meaning for us these days, which they otherwise wouldn't, at a level beyond what we could still imagine. This man receives the healing touch of Christ. But that's not the end of the story. Have a look at verse four. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Again, Leviticus 13 and 14 explain what's going on here. When someone was healed on those rare occasions when they recovered from a skin disease like this, they had to be ceremonially cleansed before they could re-enter normal society. The process took place in two stages, and Rebecca sort of took us on a hop, skip and a jump through them. But do go and read them in more detail for yourselves. Broadly speaking, it went like this. Firstly, the the recovered person brings two live, clean birds and undergoes for, for sacrifice and undergoes a ritual cleansing. His clothes are washed. His hair is all shaved off. His body is bathed. And that means then that he can re-enter the camp. But even then, he must remain outside his tent for seven days. Then he brings two male lambs and some olive oil and flour as a further offering. And with these sacrifices, atonement is made for him before the Lord. And only then can he re-enter normal life. At that point, declared officially clean by the priests. Well, there are three things to note here. Firstly, Jesus isn't just concerned with the man's physical health. He's also concerned with his being reintegrated into society as a full member of Israel, ceremonially clean before God. The sacrifices make atonement for him before God. Perhaps you're someone listening in who feels too far gone for Jesus. 
Well, note here that Jesus hasn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. And that extends beyond the physical level to the spiritual level, too. Whatever you've done, however your life has looked to this point, don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is waiting for you to sort out your act before you become a Christian. We come to him like the man with this serious skin disease. We have a disease of the heart. And that's our sinful rejection of God. And wonderfully, Christ came to wash us clean of this greater disease. But if you're already a believer, as most people watching will be, allow this healing to remind you of the compassion and love of Christ. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. So don't allow, don't allow a sense of guilt over persistent sin to prevent you coming before him. He is full of compassion and he, he longs for repentant sinners to return to him and receive forgiveness. Secondly, notice that Jesus doesn't undermine this system. He follows the requirements of the law. Until the new covenant is established, the requirements of the old covenant stand and Jesus fulfills them perfectly. He calls the healed man to respond in keeping with the law by offering the necessary sacrifices. When we talk about Christ fulfilling the law for us, we're not only talking about the moral law. He fulfilled the civil law and he fulfilled the ceremonial laws as well. Early on in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And thirdly, notice Jesus's concern over who hears about this healing. The healed man, well, he's not to tell anyone. Throughout Matthew's gospel, we see people misunderstand the true nature of Jesus's mission, assuming that he came to to powerfully overthrow the Romans and establish a, a, a new rule in the here and now. But he came to establish his kingship in a very different way. By dying for his enemies rather than overthrowing them. But having said that, Jesus doesn't want the healing completely silenced. It's not that he doesn't want anybody to know about it. Notice again at the end of verse four, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Well, the people generally may not have been quick to understand the nature of Jesus's mission, but the priests who were familiar with the Old Testament prophecies, well, they should have been. Notice, if we flick on a couple of pages to chapter 11, notice Jesus' response. In verse 5 of chapter 11, when John the Baptist asks if, if, if Jesus is the one to come, Jesus replies, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured. 
The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus there is saying this healing is a marker that the one to come has arrived. When the priests are presented with this man, it should serve to them as a sign that the promised one has come. And these healings serve as a sign of the same thing to us, too. They're a testimony. They're a testimony of the authority of Christ and a a call for us to believe in him. For those of us who are believers, they're a, they're a great encouragement they're, and they're a, they're a reminder of the authority of the one that we worship and follow. But for any who hear these signs and ignore them, they'll function as a witness against you. If you fail to respond in faith, you cannot claim that you didn't know. Well, that brings us to the second healing, the healing of the centurion's servant in verses five to 13. Firstly, let's consider and we'll consider those three headings again. We're going to do them in a different order this time. Firstly, let's consider the faith of this man. Let's read verses five to eight again. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. This Roman centurion servant is is very unwell. He is in severe pain and he's paralyzed. We've heard already, haven't we, about what that word paralyzed means. One of my children got it confused with the word sterilized, um, which was an interesting conversation. Uh, but anyway, it means he can't move. You can hear the centurion's desperation. The word translated asking for help has the literal sense of, of pleading. But then hear what happens next. When Jesus says he'll come and heal him, the centurion stops him in his tracks and says, Lord, I- I don't deserve even to have you in my house. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. His faith, this Roman centurion's faith, is even greater than that of the man with leprosy. He believes that Jesus can heal his servant at a distance simply by his word. He believed that Jesus's word was enough to bring healing. That brings us to our second observation. He, like the leper, he once again sees the authority of Christ. Notice at the beginning of verse eight, the centurion addresses him as Lord. Now, we could pass over that quite quickly. We saw the same in the last healing back in verse two, but it's even more significant here. Because, you see, Roman centurions swore an oath to call only the emperor, only Caesar, Lord. To address Christ as Lord, put his own military position 
in danger. It's, it's an astonishing statement. Plenty of early Christians were killed for refusing to declare that Caesar is Lord, confessing only that Christ is Lord. Well, if that's how they treated Christians who weren't in the army, imagine the risk to a man who has risen to the rank of centurion, declaring that there is another Lord instead of Caesar. And as an aside here, we're reminded that Jesus Christ is the true sovereign over the world. Power given to government is delegated to them by him. Christ isn't just king of the church. He is king over all creation. And like the centurion, our ultimate submission Our ultimate obedience is to be to him, not to any earthly powers. But there's more. And it's it's truly remarkable what we see next, what we see next. Let's pick it up um, from verse eight. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, I'm afraid here the NIV translation doesn't do justice to the Greek. They've left out a really important word here. It's actually a very small word, but in this context, it's a very important word. It's a short word, which means and or also. So as you'll find in other Bible translations, the phrase I myself am a man under authority should better be translated. I, too, am a man under authority. I, too, says this Roman centurion to Jesus. I, too, am a man under authority. I'm a man under authority as well. What what does the centurion mean by this? Well, in the Roman Empire, all authority, all power belonged to the the emperor. And it was then delegated to those like this centurion who were under his authority. And that means that when the centurion spoke, he was speaking on the emperor's authority. To defy To disobey him was to disobey the emperor himself, to disobey Rome itself with all of its imperial majesty and might. Now let's come back to what he says to Jesus. He says, I, I too am a man under authority. In other words, I'm a man under authority just like you, Jesus. This man's been granted a profound understanding. He gets something of the source of Jesus's authority. He understood that Christ's ultimate authority was the throne room of God in glory. 
That's where Matthew's gospel ends. With Jesus' incredible words in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority, says Jesus, has what? Has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This centurion is the first man to just catch a glimpse of this authority that has been vested in Jesus Christ by the Father. Well, if we weren't sure that the insight of this man was something unique, look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jesus, Jesus was astonished. That's a strong word. It's only used twice of Jesus in the whole New Testament. It's worth pausing to consider it for a moment, isn't it? What is it that causes Jesus to be astonished? Well, at one level and straightforwardly, it's the faith of this man. But we might come at the question from another angle, from a slightly different perspective. In John chapter six, verse 38, Jesus says, everyone the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Later in the chapter, in verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What does that mean? Well, it means that God the father is the one who gives this centurion to Christ. The centurion comes to Christ because the father draws him. That's why he responds with such faith. And as Jesus encounters this faith in this man, he's astonished. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, God the father gives his beloved son a lovely surprise. Human fathers love to give their children surprises, don't they? My family um, have recently decided to get a dog. The truth is that my wife and I came to that decision a couple of months ago, but we kept it a secret. We kept it a secret until we stopped by to see friends of ours last week, whose dog, unbeknownst to our four children, had a litter of puppies a week earlier. The look on their faces when they clapped eyes on her and the litter, and as they realised that that one of these puppies would be ours, was it was just a priceless moment that I'm not going to forget. Ferguson, again, says this, isn't it one of the delights of earthly fathers to be able to surprise his children? And to fill his children with that beautiful sense of delight that makes them look into their father's eyes and say, you're the greatest father in the world. Well, I'm not sure my kids would go that far, (laughs) but that's that's a sense. That's just a sense of the delight and amazement that Jesus feels in this passage as he considers what his father has just done. What precisely is it that so amazes Jesus here? Well, the faith 
of this Roman centurion is one of the signs that God the Father gives Jesus that, as verse 11 puts it, many will come from east and west and sit, take their seat in the kingdom. And that links to our third observation in the passage, the exclusion of the centurion. Let's read from verse 10 again. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and he said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. The centurion's exclusion wasn't because of a skin disease, but because he was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. And yet, Jesus says he has a faith that surpasses anyone in Israel. This man, who's been brought up in paganism, worshipping false gods, puts his faith in Christ. And it prompts Jesus to explain how many will come from the east and the west, that's the Gentiles, and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But then verse 12, the subjects, literally the word means sons, the sons of the kingdom, that is the Jews, will be thrown into the outer Darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus makes clear that the sole grounds for access to the kingdom is faith in himself. Samuel Renahan has written a wonderful book called The Mystery of Christ. And in that book, he helpfully puts it like this. Jesus taught, he says, that the offspring of Abraham according to the flesh, that is, the Jews, were tenant workers who couldn't claim a right in the kingdom apart from faith in Christ. He goes on, they were, they were the guardians of the arrival of the one who would bless but they had no automatic claim to the blessing he brought. The thought that a Gentile by faith, without circumcision or any Jewish connection, would inherit the kingdom, while the very children of Abraham were excluded, was enraging. But they failed to understand. Indeed, they disbelieved the Messiah's mission and message. They tripped over the stumbling block in Zion, the mystery of Christ. The kingdom of heaven preached by the Jewish Christ was a blessing for all nations, irrespective of parentage or outward obedience 
to Jewish laws. So as we draw things to a close, what can we learn from these two healings? Firstly, note the authority of Christ. See his power to heal. He has authority over this terrible skin disease and he has authority over this servant's illness, which has left him paralyzed and in agony. See the effectual power of Jesus's word. He has only to speak and he brings life and healing. Both of those who get healed understand the authority of Christ. They come and they submit to him as Lord, but they also come to him as their savior. They recognize his authority. They don't doubt his power and they beg him to bring healing and restoration. They don't come on the basis of their good works. The account of the uh, the same miracle of the, uh, with the Roman centurion is told in Luke's gospel as well in chapter seven. And there we discover that this centurion loved the Jewish people. He'd even built a synagogue for them. And yet remember his words here. I I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. They don't come on the basis of their good works, but nor are they excluded on the basis of their social position or their physical health or their race or their birth. The only thing which counts is what they make of Jesus. Children, there's a stark warning for you in this passage. Verse 12 the sons or the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Children don't make the same mistake that the Jews made when they thought that their access to the kingdom was given because they were sons of Abraham. You don't gain access to the kingdom because your parents are Christians. You need to recognize Jesus is Lord for yourself. And you can see that right here in this passage, recognize his authority and submit to him. Repent of your sins and put your faith in this wonderful savior. And of course, the same must be said for any grown ups who don't know Christ as saviour and Lord. These healings show that anyone, anyone can come to Christ and receive forgiveness in his name. If you're someone who's been on the fringes at Hollywell for some time, if you've not yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from submitting to Christ today from repenting and finding salvation in his name. Don't hold back. Don't allow your background, your history, your messed up life, your broken relationships. Don't allow any of these things to stand as barriers to coming to Christ. The only grounds for access to the kingdom is faith in Jesus Christ. Which brings us 
to our final point. These two healings give us a glimpse of what true faith looks like. Faith isn't some ethereal, vague and wishy-washy thing. It's concrete. These two men trusted that Jesus could bring healing. They recognized his authority. It's a simple thing to put your faith in Christ. Christ did die on the cross in order to face God's rightful anger at our sin. And so it is possible for you not to face the punishment that you deserve for, for rejecting God. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have, listen to the word, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. He chose to lay down his life for you. Will you put your faith in him? Will you put your trust in his death in your place? If so, you will take your place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom. That, friends, brothers, sisters, that is the future that awaits us. Not because of anything we've done to earn it, but we have a place at the table. We have life everlasting and an inheritance that awaits us, which cannot spoil. Let's pray together as we finish. Heavenly Father, what an extraordinary privilege it is to look ahead to our future and know that we have a place at the table. That we have been, we wild olive branches have been grafted into the cultivated olive tree. Father, we thank you for giving us to the sun. We thank you for drawing us to him. And we thank you for the extraordinary future that awaits us. Father, we pray for any listening in who do not yet know you as Lord and Saviour. We pray that they would not put off this most important of decisions. And we pray that you would bring saving faith, that you would draw them, that you would give them to the Son, that they too might have this glorious future ahead of them. In Jesus' name, amen.